welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, there was a, there was a man, a very wealthy man who was dying. And he wanted to take his money with him, as foolish as that may sound. And so he decided to bring three of his friends together. And he gave each of them uh, an envelope filled with $100,000 worth of cash. And he said that at my burial, at my, my, uh, my funeral, I want you to sneak the envelope into my casket so that they'll bury me with my money. And so his three friends, one was a, uh, a lawyer, one was a politician, and the other was a pastor. If you haven't figured out it's a joke yet, this is your clue, right? It's not three men walked into a bar, but it's on the same lines, right? Well, the, sure enough, he died soon after. The funeral happened. And while they're at the reception afterwards, the three friends got together, and they were talking with one another. And, and the lawyer felt, felt guilty. I know it's amazing. But he felt really guilty, uh, and he couldn't look his friends in the eyes. And he confessed to his friends. He said, guys, I, uh, I only return $50,000. The other, the other 50000 I I used to, um, to start an education uh, scholarship for underprivileged kids. Uh, I feel really bad, but I had to tell you this. At which point, the politician hearing this, he also was feeling guilty. And he admitted that he, he only returned a quarter, or, or sorry, three quarters of it, 75000 And the other quarter he used to fund an overseas uh, medical clinic. At which point, the pastor looked at these two men and, and, and just disgust that is the the dying request of his friends couldn't be honored he says guys i can't understand your ethics and your morals i mean i i wrote him a check for the full amount <laughs> you know it's a, it's a funny joke right because you would expect the lawyer and the politician to be a bit more corrupt and the pastor would be the one of integrity that's that's why the joke works right because it's it's unexpected in that way uh, however uh, I wish I could say that it's only unexpected. The, the reality is that the number of scandals the, that have surrounded the church or people in, in ministry that um, has surrounded around money has, has made people very cautious when it comes to money. Uh, I don't know if this is a true conversation, but there was a conversation that was recorded, uh, written down. I, I'm guessing it was made up, but the point is still valid, where one day the pope uh, was, was sort of counting his money when uh, Thomas Aquinas came in. And the Pope says to, to Thomas, no longer can the church say we don't have silver and gold, referencing to when Peter and John were walking and they saw a lame man begging. And Peter said, we don't have silver and gold, but get up and walk. And so the Pope says, no longer can we say as a church we don't have silver and gold, as he's sort of swimming with it like Scrooge McDuck. At which point Thomas Aquinas says to him, and no longer can we say get up and walk either. And there's, there's a lot of power to that. I, again, I don't know if it was actually said, but the reality is if we make money what we're pursuing, if we look at the gospel as just another business venture or a way to make money, we're going to miss the heart of it. We're going to miss the power of it as well. And, um, and so it's been interesting these last uh, two weeks before. This is our third and, and what will be our final week talking about money as we go through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you want, you can turn to that in your Bibles now. But... But part of me feels bad because I, I don't enjoy talking about money. And people may be thinking, like, like, let's get on with it. And I, I feel that. 
Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to being done and moving on. Uh, although I must say, this is a record. I, I'm proud to say a record. Getting through two chapters in three weeks? Come on, that's, that's impressive, right? Uh, don't get used to it. So, so I, I want to move on. But what's, what's interesting is some of the feedback that I've heard, and, and through comments and, and hearsay and so forth, and, and it's almost like they're not hearing what I'm saying. Because what, it's almost like as soon as you bring up money, their mind's just filled with rage from mistrust and anger and hurt from previous experiences that they're assuming that I'm going to start off saying, OK, now you have to give, and you have to give this much, and, and I got my hand out. And that's not what we've been saying. right? So as a quick recap, the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at is, number one, we saw that the love of money is the root of all evil. right? It's not money. Money in itself isn't bad. It's that pursuit. It's where you make money your god. And people often do that. They make money their god because they think money will be the key to contentment, that it will give me power, it will give me friends, it will give me love, it will give me security, and then I'll be at peace because I've got the money in the bank account, the rainy day fund, that no matter what happens, I'm safe. The house is all paid for, I'm safe. And their trust now is in those finances, is in the money. And we saw that that doesn't give us contentment. That contentment is found in Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul was able to find contentment, whether he was rich or whether he was poor, because he found that secret of learning to trust Jesus. And then last week, we looked at this issue of tithing. And we saw that tithing is part of the Old Covenant. And we're not part of the Old Covenant. We don't have to worry about the Old Covenant, because we're not part of it. We're part of a new and different covenant. There's no connection. There's no overlap between the two of them. And so we don't have to practice this tithe, which is a mandatory tax. That's what it was. It was 10% of what you made in a year you would have to give to the Levites, to the priests. That was what the, the tithe was. We are not under that tithing system. And so there's no mention of tithing when it comes to the church. Instead, we get to give. But that giving is a free will offering. That's what it is. God loves a cheerful giver. You give what you, is on your heart to give. And if that's little, if that's a lot, doesn't matter. As long as you're obedient to what God puts on your heart. That's what matters. That's what's the key of it. And so it's not about 10%. It could be more. It could be less. It's irrelevant. It's doing what God's put on your heart, being obedient to what God's asked you to do. So... Now what we want to do is we want to move on and we start to want to understand a little bit more about why we give. And I think that's what, what 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 really kind of give in more detail. But I want to give a quick Coles note version of these two chapters before we begin, because we're not going through it verse by verse like we are in other parts of the scriptures. Remember Coles notes? I mean, I think that's sort of, it's before Google, right? Google's kind of wiped Coles notes off the planet. But that was when like, you didn't, didn't read your Shakespeare play or War and Peace and suddenly got to write a paper or you got to test on it. I know teachers are shocked by this, but students found some shortcuts. And Coles notes was that shortcut, right? It was that, that really simple, smaller, shorter version, gave you all the highlights, important quotes. It would, it wouldn't, you wouldn't get an A on the test, but you would pass. That was sort of the Coles notes. Well, here's the Coles notes versions of chapters eight and nine, right? The, the premise of this, of, of why Paul's writing this, is a year earlier, uh, he spoke with the Corinthians, and the Corinthians expressed their desire to Paul, saying, we would love to be able to support other Christians, other believers, people who are struggling. This ministry of the saints, they called it. And that was on their heart. That's what they desired to do. And Paul said, great. So start saving up for that. And then we'll come back and we'll, we'll collect that. Well, the Macedonians, which was the province north of the, of the Corinth, uh, that's where the, Philippi uh, Filipinos, the, the Philippians and others were. 
Um, they were up there in, it's, see, it's free to make mistakes, right? So they're up there in Macedonia, and they hear about what the Corinthians want to do, and they're like, that's amazing. We want to do that too. So they started to give. And they actually even gave more than you would typically expect that they were able to give because they were so excited to do so. But again, it wasn't required. It was out of their heart. It was a cheerful gift. And so Paul's now writing to these Corinthians saying, we got people coming. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, Timothy or maybe Silas is coming and, and another, another person who's so famous, we don't even have to say his name. We don't know who he is, but they're gonna, we're going to send him and they're going to collect this gift. And it's probably going to be a sizable gift because Corinth is a very wealthy group. It's a wealthy city. It's a, it's a trading city that basically if you wanted to kind of go uh, west east, you would go through Corinth. And so it was a very wealthy city in that sense. And so he's saying when they show up, be ready for it. But he also knows that when it comes to money, people sometimes turn into T-Rexes. You know what I mean by that? Is that when it comes to money, suddenly their arms get really short and they can't quite reach the wallet anymore. Right? It's a real thing. And, and so he knows that. And so he's writing to them and saying, listen, I understand the reaction because you think money is what's going to protect you. You think money is, is what it's about. It's not. God's going to look after you. Trust him. Right? If you reap sparingly, you will, you will um, sorry, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you sow a lot, you can see God do a lot. And so he's inviting them to be a part of something bigger. But again, he's saying, but I'm not requiring it. I'm not demanding it. You're free to do what's on your heart. But just be obedient to what God's asking you to do in that moment. And then so he's encouraging that and, and letting them know that that gift then becomes an expression of love. It's an expression of their gratitude and an opportunity to see what God's going to do and how he's going to look after them. Right? So that's sort of the Coles Notes version. But now what we want you to understand this morning is we want to understand why do we give? What's the motivation? What's the heart behind that? And then where does that money kind of go, go for? What is it used for? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you so much that in you we have freedom. We have freedom to fail, freedom to make mistakes, freedom to, to trust, freedom to follow you. And I, I pray in particular, Father, that we would find freedom in this area of money. Because for a lot of people, both rich and poor, money has dominated them. Money has controlled them because we put an overstated emphasis in the strength and power of money. And so, Lord Jesus, we're going to trust you to be the teacher. We're going to trust you are going to lead us to truth because that truth, your truth, sets us free. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let me just quickly start with four reasons why you shouldn't give. There's probably more, but these are the four that came to me really quickly. Number one, don't give to try to earn something from God. Right? Don't do it to try to, to, to please him. Don't do it to think that if I do this, he will bless me, and that's it. Because that, if that's the case, you're just trying to manipulate God. That's not it. It's not give in order to get something in return. Don't give because you've been told you have to. Because we're not under law anymore, right? Romans 6, 14. You are not under law. Complete. Full stop. Not part of the law. Not some of the law. The entire law. The entire old covenant you are free from. You're under grace. So you don't have to give. It's something you get to do. To, to, do, to the amount that you want to. That's on your heart. Don't give because you're afraid that God will curse you if you don't. That's kind of the flip side. One is, well, I'm going to get blessings. The other is, if you don't, then God's going to withhold and he's going to curse you. That's Both of those are old covenant thinking. And then finally, don't give in order for you to control someone else. 
Sometimes that's what people do, right? They use that money thinking they can use the power uh, or have control over someone or something in return. So I'm going to give, and that's going to grease the skids, and I'm going to get something out, out of it. Both, all four of those are, are really poor reasons to give. Instead, the reason we give is the same reason we do anything. See, everything we do is to be motivated by the simple goal and the desire to love others through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Everything we do, everything we do is motivated by the desire and the goal to love others through faith in Jesus Christ. That might be the most important thing you hear this morning. And, and to drive this point home, what I want to do is I want to share with you guys a bunch of verses. You don't have to go look them up because we're going to just kind of go through these verses really quickly. There's about seven or eight passages, and you're going to see this common theme. And, and so we're going to put these verses up here on the screen because I want you to be able to read them and see them and see the consistency of this message. Because the reality is the gospel, although it's incredibly, beautifully, I mean, it's the mind of God, yet there's some simplicity to it. This simple uh, constant message over and over again. So that's what I want us to see this morning. So the first one we're going to look at up on the screen is Galatians 5, verse 6. Paul here, he's writing, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. It's not about the performance. It's not about what you do. And the reality is here, the issue was around circumcision and uncircumcision in the church of Galatia, but we could replace it with anything. It's not about tithing or not tithing. It's not about speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. It's not about baptism or not baptism. It's not about going to church or not going to church. It's not about how you dress or what you don't wear. It's, it has nothing to do with the outward performance. That's not what's at the heart of it, Paul says. Here's what does matter. Faith working through love. Faith working through love. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says this, the goal of our instruction the point, the purpose, the hope that every time that I, Rob and Josh or anyone else gets up on here and, and speaks to you guys, here's our goal. The goal says that you would love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. That you would love, that's the goal, from this pure heart, this new nature that God's given you and I. He's gotten rid of the old heart. The sinner was crucified with Christ, buried. You were born again. You were given a new heart, a pure heart. So we're going to live from that new heart. We're going to live from that new identity with a good conscience, meaning I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm not trying to control. I'm not trying to get anything back in return. I'm doing what's in another person's best interest. A good conscience and a sincere faith, trusting and depending on Jesus Christ as best I know how to be Jesus in and through me. Not me trying to be Jesus, but Jesus being Jesus through me. That's our goal. That's what we're wanting to do. Romans 13, verse 8, owe nothing to anyone. This is not financial advice, right? It's not talking about whether you should have a mortgage or not. He says this is what we, uh, essentially what our debt is to people. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's what Jesus is saying right before he goes to the cross. He says, this is the one thing you need to do. Love others as I've loved you. To make that point, in 1 John, uh, the, the letter that John writes, in chapter 3, verse 23, he writes, for this is his commandment. Again, he's kind of quoting it, that we believe in the, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. That first part, that we believe that we were saved, that we're, we're putting our faith in him as our, as our Messiah. And the result of that now, day in, day out, 
we love one another just as we loved ourselves. Earlier on in that same letter in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, he says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. and We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what it means to love someone. The best definition of love is to do what's in another person's best interest, even at my own expense. Doing what they need. Not making them happy. Not making them love me back. Doing what they need. Doing what's in their best interest, even if it comes at my own cost. And so that's what we're called to do. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I mean, think about it. Like, how do you, how do you constrain God's love? It's like saying, I'm going to go block Niagara Falls. Good luck. I'm not going to be able to do it. So how can you, you can't restrain the heart of God. You can't restrain his love. It's wanting and demanding to flow through you and towards other people. So if you see a brother struggling, if you see a brother who needs something, how do you turn a blind eye to that, John's saying? So he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's too easy for us to just kind of walk past people and just say, well, I'm praying for you, and, and then never actually pray. Or to see that hurt and that pain and go, ah, I just wish there was something they could do, but then doing nothing about it. And then finally, the last one I want you to see, and hopefully you're seeing this, this constant thread in all these passages, but now we're back in the passage that we're studying this morning in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, but just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in the love which we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Right? And in terms of you've experienced God's love and you've seen it and you've, you've tasted it and you've seen it in us, he says, now you also express that towards other people. Verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as, as proving through the earnestness, earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. It's meant to be a natural outflowing of the life of Jesus. In many ways, verse 8 is sort of like saying, put your money where your mouth is, proverbially, right? In the sense that, um, that if, if you're going to say you love people, then love people, then do it. And in this case here, it's not just proverbial. It's actual true. It's actual put your money where your mouth is in terms of that's what's on your heart. Again, he's not saying it's a command. He's not demanding the money. He's not saying you owe me this money. Now you have to give it to me. It's based on that cheerful giving aspect. Because I think Paul understands and all the other writers understand what Jesus said in Matthew 6, that where your, where your money is, where your treasure is, there's your heart as well. And so is, the, is that treasure, is that money there to protect me and keep me safe? In which case, money becomes my God. Or is my money there as a tool that God can use to bless, bless other people? Because that's, that's really this idea of, of looking out for other people. And I think that's why we develop these T-Rex arms. Because if I, if I give that money away, then who's going to look after me? See, John the Baptist, when he was, he was uh, speaking and teaching with people, they were asking, well, what, what do we do? What's our part now? And so he gave a simple command. He says, if you have two tunics and you see one with none, give them your tunic. You see, it's easy for us to say, but I need that spare. What, hap what if this first one gets stolen? What if that first one gets ruined? So it's good to have a spare in the closet so I have a backup. Meanwhile, that person without a tunic is still cold. And so John's saying, give him your tunic. And then you might say, but what happens if my tunic gets lost? 
Well, guess who provides you a new tunic? It's God. Because he's the one protecting you, not that spare tunic. That's not what it is. But when we place our faith in money, it's misplaced faith. Because the reality is, no matter how much money you have, it can disappear overnight. I mean, we're seeing that more and more today, especially because so much of our money is, is really just theoretical. Right? Two of the richest people on earth are, are Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, and Elon Musk, who owns everything else, right? So <laughs> richest people. But the reality is, it's all on paper. It's all theoretical. It's all based on if, you were, if they were to sell all of their shares in their companies, then they would have that money. But in reality, they don't. So it's just theoretical. And overnight, bad news might drop, and the share prices plummets. And so you'll see headlines. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, other rich people lost $10 billion overnight because they had you know, bad news in the stock market. It can disappear. Or you, you have some material possessions, but that can rust. It can rot. Or it can be stolen. Don't put your trust in money, God's saying. Put your trust in me and watch how I look after you. So our motive then is to give in order that we might love others. That's the give, that we can help them, look after them, provide for them as Jesus is doing that through us. So then the question is, well, how do we spend that money? Where is that money supposed to go? God does give us some insight into that. And I think there are kind of two broad areas that we can look at here. And so we're going to look at those two basic areas. The first one is that the, the and this is, by the way, in no particular order, but the first one we're going to look at is that the money is meant to go and provide for the, the local ministry. It's to provide for what's happening within the local church. And, and, and I want to be careful on when I say that word local church, because sometimes we have this idea there's a church over here and there's the parachurch organizations over here. And I've never actually liked that. As someone who currently is in both of those worlds, there's only one church. Right? Jesus says where two or three are gathered, there I am. There's the church. And so it doesn't matter if you're functioning under what we know is as a, as a local church or whether you're part of a, a parachurch organization. It's all still the church. And so, so we give in order to supply the, the resources required to have that ministry run. So here at New Life then, um, that is specific to us. The, the church or the ministry called New Life Fellowship and making sure that it is, it is financed and it is funded. So let's take a look at a couple of those verses because mainly what that is referring to is, is paying for, in this case here, renting this space and other, other programs we might run, but also to, to look after the salaries of, of the pastors. But we're going to see that there's a biblical aspect to that. So if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So in 1 Corinthians, this is Paul's first letter to them at least the first one that we have recorded. In, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this, because there's allegations and, and charges, but why is Paul making money off the gospel? It's not right. He shouldn't be profiting off of it. So he says, this is my defense. Verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? I mean, are we supposed to go hungry? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends the flock and does not use the milk of the flock? 
I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, or am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope and the sharing of the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, it is, too mu- is it too much that we should reap material things from you as well? That's the question here. He's saying, we're blessing you guys. We're, we're teaching you and we're imparting these spiritual truths. Would it not make sense to then share material goods with us? And the reason is, because if, if you don't, then Paul and Barnabas and, and other people employed in ministry would have to go get another job. And they would have to work, which would limit their capacity, limit the amount of time that they could actually provide for that. So he says very clearly then, verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, I've kind of thought of it this way. It's not good to get rich off the gospel. That's not the point. But it's not wrong. In fact, it's biblical to to have a wage, to make an earning from sharing the gospel. That's right. That's proper. And so pastors or people on staff, it's right that they get paid from those gifts. Now, people might say, well, but wasn't Paul a tent maker? Meaning that he earned a living by selling tents. And he did that in Corinth. He did that in Thessalonica and maybe other places. So shouldn't, therefore, pastors be tent makers today? Earn a living on the side as well as ministering. And that way, there's more money for the giving. There's more money for the ministry. Isn't that a better thing? Well, a couple of problems with that kind of thinking. First off, that's, kind of, that's trying to create a principle from a narrative, from a story. So we see an account of what Paul did, and now we look at that and say, well, that's the principle to apply everywhere. And that's, that's some faulty thinking here, which is why I think Paul has this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 to make it clear that, yes, he worked as a tent maker, but it was also right that he can collect an earning, collect a wage from the gospel. And in fact, if you, we're not going to turn to it, but if you read in, in Acts 18, the first five verses, we see Paul's story of how he arrived in Corinth. And he met with a couple people, Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers. And so he joined with them. They had something in common. And that was a way to build a relationship, build a rapport. And so he was helping them, working with them, building these tents, all while sharing the gospel, sharing faith with them. And they were growing, but he didn't stay there. Then others came. And others were able to take on some of that ministry, some of that work. And it says in verse 5 of Acts 18 that Paul devoted himself then to the word. He stopped working as a tent maker. He devoted full time now to to studying, to teaching, to preaching, to sharing, to meeting with people and praying with people and, and just evangelizing people and building God's church. Christ through him, of course. And so he was doing that full time. And so it's it's right and it's proper that people can take take a wage from that. And right now here at at New Life, the reality is uh, Rob and I are the two pastors, two elders that are paid, right? And so I like to joke that that Rob and I are paid to be good and Josh and Greg are good for nothing. (laughs) It's true, right? But the reality is we're tent makers. Rob and I are only paid here two days a week, essentially, and then three days a week we have other jobs. Robin here at the, at the seminary and myself as a, as a counselor and executive director at Crossways to Life. And, and we kind of started this way. And in fact, the reality is we started with even less time. We all started as volunteers. But we started this way because New Life couldn't finance it. It couldn't afford that. 
And we, we are happy to do so to see it grow. But the reality is, is it's starting to reach a point where we don't have time to do all that we want to do in ministering to, to the body with our limited time. And so for me, later on this year, I'm, I'm going to go to full-time. I'm going to be now uh, stepping away from my role at Crossways to Life, and I'm going to become now the full-time uh, pastor here at, at New Life. And Robin, I'm hoping we'll be able to follow us, follow that you know, maybe in a year or two. And, and there'll be more people that are able to share and minister to one another here. And so that's all it is, is we're simply, we got bills to pay. We have families to look after. And so giving to new life, giving it to any church, allows for that to happen. And so that's this idea here, is that you're to share materially with anyone who shares with you spiritually. And that's true for those here in, in the auditorium right now. It's true for those who are watching online. That if you guys are, are blessed and encouraged by, by the ministry here at New Life, then it is, it is right and proper to share with the church your material blessings as well. But please, please understand, don't limit it to just this church. That if there's other ministries out there that are blessing you. I know a lot of people are, are truly blessed by people like Mike, Mike Daniels and, and, and Frank Friedman and Andrew Farley and John Lynch and many other great speakers. If, if you are, are consistently sitting under their teachings, then it is right and proper for you to share with them, which allows them that time and the ability to teach. Because if they, if they don't have that gift, they don't have that income, then the reality is they got bills to pay as well. They have to eat and drink, as Paul says in Corinthians. And so we share with those who share with you. That's this principle that he's trying to share. And again, it's not about give new life your money. Don't want it. Not interested in that. What I am interested in is give what God's asking you to give. Be obedient to Father in that. And here's something that's really, really cool. This is really, really special. Turn in Philippians chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning verse 15. This is... Not the Filipino church, right? The church of the Philippians in Macedonia. Remember how he said they, they, they started collecting and they were a much poorer city than, than the city of Corinth, but they gave even beyond what was comfortable because they wanted to be a part of this special opportunity, this ministry of the saints. And so he's writing to them now, having received it. And so in verse 15, he says, And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. They were the only church, the only place to support them. Not a wealthy city, but they were the only one to support Paul. But even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Watch this. Not that I seek the gift itself. Paul says, I don't need your money. God doesn't need your money. He's going to look after me one way or the other. If you give or don't give, God's still got it. God's not sitting there going, oh, I need those Philippians to give. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm going to do with Paul. He's, I got it. I can take care of it. But why is then Paul celebrating this? He says, verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. Here's what he's saying. When, when you give to a ministry, whether it be the local church or a parachurch or, or another speaker out there, you partner with them. You join in their ministry. And, and so what that means is now what they're doing, what Christ is doing through them, that fruit, you get to be a part of. Now, you might think, but I, I, I don't speak. I don't know how to teach. I don't know how. I, I could never imagine being up on a stage like that. But every time you give to that organization or that church or that ministry, you are joining with what they're doing. 
And so one day, when we stand before Jesus, we stand before the throne, only then will you discover what ministries you've been a part of and how you are able to further the gospel into all the corners of the world how you were able to, to share the message of grace and new covenant and freedom and how people's lives and marriages and, and, and their relationships were changed. How hurting hearts were healed. People full of anxiety and despair were able to find freedom in life. All because you wrote a check. All because you clicked make a payment. Because you made a gift and you're partnering with them. That's why Paul is saying, be a part of this. It's an invitation. Be a part of what God's doing. And, and if you, quite frankly, if, if you're sitting here or you're watching online, you're like, I, I don't want to give. That's okay, because you're getting nothing out of it. But then my question, why are you here? And that's okay. Then find somewhere where you're going to be fed spiritually. But the moment you find a place that's feeding you spiritually, it's right, it's proper for you to support that ministry in some way. That make sense? All right, so the first one there is that money is giving to support the ministry of, of the church, whether it's a formal church or, or a parachurch organization, paying staff, renting facilities, and so forth. But there's another aspect, and this is the one that I get more excited about. And the other aspect is, is back in, in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where, where Paul is talking about this ministry of the saints. Uh, another, another phrase for that might be uh, the Jerusalem fund. He's kind of using, uh, using these different terms here. And what's interesting is when Paul first began to, to become enlightened and see the gospel and he started sharing the gospel, he met with the apostles to make sure that what he was teaching was good and true. And so he shared with James and John and Peter and all the, the who's who of, of Christianity at the time. He says, here's what God's given me. Here's what Jesus has given me. Find any faults. Find any, any errors in my theology. And they all said, it's perfect, Paul. Go and teach it. He says, there's one thing. Make sure you also look after the poor. And Paul says, great. I'd love to do that. And so he's happy to do that. And so that was sort of that condition, that, that he wanted to look after people that were hurting. And, and the one part of the church that was hurting more than any other part were the, were the Christians in Jerusalem, where it all started from. And Paul really, he's recognizing that, that the reality is the church came from Jerusalem, right? That if you were to, if any church today, if you were to try to follow its lineage, it goes back to Jerusalem. That's where it started, on Pentecost. And, and so for them, you know, the, as Jews becoming uh, believers in Christ, following Jesus the Messiah, that didn't go over very well, right? That was, that was considered anathema. That was blasphemy. To, to kind of give it, in, and I think this is a really good example, to kind of understand the, the cost they were paying, imagine being in Nashville, Tennessee, and saying, I don't like country music. I mean, it's true, and they're right, and it's biblical, <laughs> but they would have been persecuted, right? They would have been cut off by their friends and their family because that would be horrible. And so that was the case. To say Jesus is the Messiah was horrible to say that. They would, they would cut you out of the family. People wouldn't buy goods from you. They wouldn't even sell you goods sometimes. And so the ostracizing, the, the being cut off and what they were experiencing was, was real and was deep. And so they were a very poor church. And so what Paul was doing is he's collecting funds from all the Gentile churches to help look after those who are struggling. And the other cool thing about it is it united the church. 
You read through these New Testament epistles and you see over and over and over again that there is a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And are they really one and the same? Are they truly equal? And there was all kinds of friction in that sense. Because the Jews said, you know, Christianity really is just the fulfillment of Judaism, which I agree with. It was what God promised. It was the new covenant. It was the Abrahamic covenant. And so to invite the Gentiles, are they, is it okay? So there's all kinds of friction here. But to have the Gentile church now helping to look after the, the Jerusalem church, to have the Gentile church share materially with the Jerusalem church, which was where the spiritual part started, was a way to bring these two groups together. Support. And that's what he wanted to do, because we're all even. We're all equal in there. And so in, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. Right? So he's talking about the conflict that was going on between him and, and some people in this church. But that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God, that your heart could be exposed your true heart and your love for one another could be exposed, he's saying. That's the wrong verse, wrong chapter. It sounds really good, though. <laughs> All right, verse, chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. For it is, but if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to, to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. Again, that giving isn't be, meant to be sacrificial. It's not give till it hurts and then give a little bit more. That's not what it's about. Right? It's not meant to so that you're now in the poorhouse so others are rich. That's not what it is. Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. By way of equality. All right, in, in our society right now where there's a debate going on in our culture between these two words, equity and equality. And on the surface, you hear that and you go like, well, it's equity, equality, same thing. I, I, I like that. But the reality is these two words are loaded words. They're, they're like bombs ready to go off. And they mean very different things. So when people talk about equity, what they're really talking about is equal outcomes. That no matter where you start, we all end at the same place. Doesn't matter what you do and how you got there, we all end at the same place. Equal outcomes. Right, which is going to have to be forced and controlled to get to that point. And we see that today when it comes to things around race and gender and, and, and sexuality and so forth, that they want to see that everyone is having the same outcomes. That's what equity is. And then you have equality. And equality, we would say equal opportunity, meaning we don't control or guarantee where you get to. But what we do control and guarantee is that everyone has a chance. Everyone has the same opportunity to get there regardless of your race, your gender, your sexuality, your religion, and so forth. That's what these two words are all, all about. And, and it would be easy for us to get dragged into that debate. R really would. And, and you see that in a lot of churches right now. They're, they're having whole sermons on whether it should be equity or equality. Because that's what we do often in the church. We get dragged into these debates. We saw it a couple years ago. Right? Anyone remember COVID? Anyone remember that? No? Isaac, read a book. So... So this, this COVID came, right? And then mask mandates and vaccine mandates. And, and, and now the, what does the church say? And the church was being dragged into that political arena. And the moment we do that, the moment we get dragged into that political arena, we lose our effectiveness. We lose our purpose. 
Because our purpose is not trying to create this earthly kingdom that is running and creating a utopia here. And so we see it today, even today, where it's really, I think it was going on before COVID. COVID just gave us a break from this argument. Now that COVID's begun to pass a little bit, now we can get back to the original debate and we see churches arguing over things like capitalism and socialism, right? Should be left and right. And we get in all these debates and we're missing the point of it. So we have to understand this idea that Paul was talking about was this equality. Now, some would say, well, that's evidence of this socialistic mindset, right? If I could, if I could dumb it down and be really overly simplistic, socialism is more about the needs of the group, making sure the group is looked after. That's what socialism, that's what you have on one side, the, the political left, so to speak, whether it be liberals in, in Canada and the NDP or in the states, the Democrats. And then on the other side, you have the capitalism debate, which is all about uh, more the rights of the individual, if we were to oversimplify that one. And that would be the conservatives and the Republicans and so forth. And we see these debates going on in the political realm, and we even see it within the church. Should the church be more about social justice? Should that be what our focus is? And, and you see, and, and I've, I've heard people and speak about this, where they're just basically bringing the church under the political ideology. Now, notice it's the ideology that's top. The church is just the way to get there. But I see it the other way around, where they say, no, it's supposed to be on the right. It's supposed to be with the individual and opportunities. And so they're going to drag the church to be under that one. Do you see the problem? We're following ideologies here. But they have good verses for it. They, they try to prove the point. So the first one I want to look at is in Acts chapter 2. So this is where right after Pentecost, right after the church is born, it, it tells us a little bit about how that church began. And when we started a new life, this is the passage we went to. This is the one we looked at. What was the early church like? Because that was in its purest form, what the church was supposed to be. So in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, Luke writes, he says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they being the church. And so they were sitting under the apostles' teaching because the apostles were teaching about Jesus. And so that's why we study the Bible today, because this today is now the apostles' teaching, those, those New Testament epistles. And we're going we're gonna to share that. We're going to learn that, what the new covenant is. So they're constantly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing with them as anyone might have need. In fact, in, in a couple chapters, in Acts chapter 4, there's a man who sells everything he has, and he gave it at the feet of the apostles. He says, I'm giving this money to the church so the church can then do what they want with it. And when people saw that, they celebrated, and they were overjoyed. And, and so they were seeing this, this, this heart for people. And people would point to that and say, well, that's, that's essentially what Karl Marx was talking about when he talked about socialism or communism. right? That famous phrase, phrase from each according to his ability to each according to his need. From, from whatever I have, the extra money, the extra coat, to someone who doesn't have that coat, who doesn't have that money. So from my ability to that other person's need. Sounds like socialism. Sure enough, that's what the church should be. And that's the way the church should go. Well, the problem is we have another passage. Second passage I want to look to is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or chapter 3.
And beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, For you yourselves know how it ought to be to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that you might not be so that we might not be a burden to any of you. In essence, what he did in Thessalonica, he did the same thing he did in Corinth. He started off as a tent maker. Now he'd ever right to collect a wage from sharing the gospel, but he was doing this because he wanted to show them. He wanted to teach them the importance of working hard. Verse 9. Not because we, we do not have the right to this. Remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians 9. He has a right to earn a wage from sharing the gospel. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone does not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And so what he's speaking about, or what he's warning against, is this idea that how some people were, were taking advantage of this community aspect where they're like, you know what? People are going to give. And so why should I work? And so Paul here would seem to be speaking towards capitalism, where they, you, you work and you eat what you, you get to, to live off the reap and reap the benefits of that. So you have these two extremes. So which one is it? It's neither. It's not about the political world. I mean, you, you know this, right? That Jesus was not a liberal. He wasn't a conservative. He wasn't, he wasn't you know, a Democrat or Republican. There's some rumors that he was part of the Rhino Party, but that's not true. He wasn't a socialist. He wasn't a communist. He wasn't a capitalist. It was Jesus. And he wasn't trying to establish either of those kingdoms. What he was trying to do and why he came was to heal up the brokenhearted. Why he came and his mission's purpose was to forgive us of our sins, to wash us clean. Why he came and his purpose was to set us free from sin and from death that was dominating and ruling over us. He came that you and I might have life, eternal life, his life. He came to prepare a way that you and I could be ransomed from the devil who owned us so we could be set free. That was his mission. He came so that he could love you and I. And he demonstrated that love over and over and over again, leading up to the cross, but even afterwards. That's why he came. And so what is our purpose then? To love others, right? To love others through that sincere faith, trusting Jesus best we know how, that that love that he's bestowed upon us, that we would share that love with one another. And that's, that's through our time. That's through words of encouragement, words of exhortation, but also through giving financially, materially, looking out for one another and caring for one another. That's what we get to do. And so we have this ministry of the saints that, that I think is really special, that we get to help look after all kinds of different organizations, different groups. And some of that may be that you give to the church, and then the church dispenses that. Or maybe you give it directly to them. That's what's beautiful, is you get to do that. You do as Father leads. And so you have organizations like Compassion International that is looking out for people who live in abject poverty. I mean, real abject poverty. And so we have those places. And they also get to share the gospel. Or there's places like Ray of Hope, which is in our town, that's looking after people who are struggling with drug abuse or, or homelessness or, or struggling because they're coming out of incarceration. We got people like the Pregnancy Center that are helping young moms or maybe even older moms that feel up against it and don't know how to handle it. 
We've got places like the Alora House, which is helping, helping uh, women escape the, the sex trafficking trade. We've got places like Teen Challenges, helping people escape from, from drug addiction. We have all kinds of organizations that we get to support. And again, when you do, you partner with them. And only eternity will begin to tell you the impact that that little check had, that just that few dollars had. Because not only has it changed that one person's life, but that has a ripple effect to the next generation. So if it's on your heart to give, then do so. Be obedient to that. And if it's not on your heart to give, then don't do it. You're free. You're absolutely free. Just follow God in what he's doing and be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have set us free. Not to become a capitalist or a socialist or a communist or any ist at all. You set us free so we can walk with you and we can love you and experience life with you. And we live in a world that has material needs. And we get to now be a vessel of looking out for one another, of protecting and caring and providing for one another. And I pray, Father, that, that I know there's a lot of error and a lot of hurt around this issue of money but that you would cut through that hurt and share the truth. It's not have-tos, it's not musts, it's get-tos, it's want-tos. It's what our heart wants to do. That's what it's about. And it's all motivated by love. Love from this new heart that you've given us. Love with a good conscience, not trying to manipulate, control outcomes. And a sincere faith, trusting you as best we know how. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.